Welcome to Didn't See It Coming, the podcast about brands that learn from the past, look to the future, and profit today. I'm your host, Mark Stoiber. Hey, it's Mark here. I've got a little something different for you. Normally when I do podcasts, it's me doing the interviewing, or I go on the radio and sound off on a subject specifically in marketing. But not too long ago, a gentleman named Lance Isios dialed me up and said he runs a podcast called The University of Adversity, all about the school of hard knocks. And he said he'd heard that I had a good story. I think I do. So we went on and for almost an hour, we talked on his podcast about my journey through the world of marketing, the ups, the downs, the goods, the bads, and the uglies. I hope you enjoy the podcast. I had a ton of fun doing it with Lance. He's a terrific host, and I think it turned out pretty darn good. Enjoy. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of University of Adversity. I'm your host, Lance Isios. My next guest started a career in advertising agencies in Hong Kong, Germany, Vancouver, Toronto as a writer and a creative director. He then left the mainstream advertising to start an ad agency focused on making sustainability sexy. After five years and plenty of hard knocks, he sold the agency and struck out on his own as a consultant. Today, he helps CEOs of rising companies express their unique selling proposition and turn it into profits. So as anything, there's always going to be struggles along the way, and I'm really looking forward to hearing the struggles that he's gone through and the lessons that he's learned along the way and how we can really help everybody out there listening and and so that you don't make the same mistakes and that you can move forward in the best way possible. So Mark Stoiber, welcome to the show, man. Great to be here. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. I love looking at your story because there's a lot of people that listen to the show are online marketers and entrepreneurs and it's kind of a new age style. And when you got involved, it was probably a lot different back then. So I'm really excited to kind of dive into this whole thing in your journey. So maybe just take us back to the beginning. Give us a little bit of fill in the gaps for us on how you got into all this in the first place. Right. That's a great question. My story is a, is a long one. I'll try to keep it short, but it's, it's fairly interesting with lots of twists and turns. I was uh, a kid of an immigrant And so I was given the choice when I was very young to either run my dad's business. He did TVs, he sold TVs, or become a lawyer. And because I'd worked for my dad, I knew I didn't want to work for him anymore. And so I decided to become a lawyer. And then I discovered that I would be a terrible lawyer. I was lucky enough to then get a scholarship to go to Europe and study. And I fell in with Longines, the watch company, working in their sports timing department, which took me to the Olympics in Korea. And from Korea, I went to Hong Kong, where I discovered I had this passion for writing words with really cool photos and and creating moving films to sell stuff that is advertising. And I just had an affinity for it, and I was good at it. So I started with an ad agency in Hong Kong called Gray, a very famous ad agency, one of the original ones on Madison Avenue. And I worked in the Hong Kong office for three years. And it was wonderful because um, in Hong Kong, everything is binary. You've got uh, everything running in Chinese, Cantonese, and then you've got everything running in English. So your ideas have to translate not just in language, but they have to translate in concept. You can't, for example, do wordplay. You can't do puns because that just doesn't work. And there are certain concepts that just don't translate as well. So it was a terrific education and discipline in advertising. 
From there, I, um, I moved to Europe because my art director partner and I, usually in advertising, you partner a writer and an art director as a team. My partner and I, we wanted to see if our ideas would work in a completely different culture. So we went to Europe and worked in Germany together for a while. And then I came back to Canada and I discovered my first adversity. I'm from Calgary originally, which is an oil town. And if you know oil, you know that if you do an ad for an oil company, people buy gas. And if you don't do an ad for an oil company, people buy gas. So they don't need me. And I came back to my hometown and discovered that instead of being the, you know, the hometown boy makes good, goes around the world and then does great things back home, there was no room for me. There was nothing for me here in Calgary. There was nothing for me in Calgary. So um, I got lucky and I moved to an ad agency in Vancouver. I got invited to interview with an ad agency in Vancouver. They were called Palmer Jarvis. And they were a bit of a local washout agency doing really sappy work. But the owner, God bless him, Frank Palmer, decided that he was going to create a world-class agency. And he brought me in as part of a wave of young talent, including uh, guys like Chris Staples and Ian Grace, who are now the owners of Rethink Advertising, a big name in advertising in Canada, and a bunch of others who have gone on to great things. And uh, we became the sort of all-star team on the West Coast and adopted a sort of a persona of pirates. You know, we weren't the East Coast. We had a chip on our shoulder. And in the four years that I was at the agency, we won agency of the year, I think, three times in Canada and won a ton of awards. That moved me then to Toronto. Uh, The agency was purchased, as all good agencies are. And I got moved as part of the purchase to Toronto to run the Toronto office. And then I got bought back by Gray. I got poached. And I became the national creative director of Gray. That meant spending about a quarter of my time in New York, dealing with New York. And anybody who has worked in New York for a big company will know that that would be enough to poison your career right there. So after four or five years of that, dealing with New Yorkers and bean counters, I decided to start my own thing, moved my family back to Vancouver and fell in with the green mafia. Uh, it's like one of those things, they, they lurk in the shadows, but they're everywhere. All the guys who are doing sustainability. And I loved sustainability because as a brand and marketing person, if you apply a green filter to a product and build a product with green built in, that turns it into a completely different product. It doesn't look, feel, or work like ordinary products. It just doesn't. Look at the Prius, one of the early examples. It doesn't look like any other car. So I started an agency called Change in Vancouver to make sustainability sexy. And I discovered another misstep, which is I was ahead of the curve. And being ahead of the curve is great if you're NASA and the US government is paying your bills. But being ahead of the curve is not great if you're self-financing and nobody is buying what you're selling. So in the example of sustainability, a lot of big companies were building green into their products and building green into their operations because it was good for morale, it was good for shareholders, it was good for regulatory. But nobody was branding green because consumers back then, even today a little, if they saw something that was green, they said that doesn't work as well and it costs too much. So big brands were running away from it. So we did some wonderful work and I just became a a wealth redistribution center, earning a little bit of money, distributing it to all my employees and going home broke. And after five years, I'd had enough of that and I went on my own as a consultant. And that's where I kind of got my groove because I discovered that thanks to technology, 
I could essentially do what an ad agency does in a more niche market. That is, I work with uh, SMEs, small to medium enterprise. I work with up and comers that don't have a good handle on what their strong selling point is. And I could work with CEOs, which is a wonderful thing. And you never get that working with big package goods or consumer fast moving goods companies. So I get to work with CEOs today and counsel them and don't get my hands so dirty in the executional work that is the day-to-day writing brochure stuff. And yeah, that's, that's sort of where I'm at today. Yeah, that, that's awesome because that's kind of like almost the, like you hear about that and I start to think of like Don Draper. From, yeah, it uh, is a Don Draper story. Yeah, the, the part that's interesting is the Don Draper when he goes to California and he starts to meditate. I love it because how was advertising in New York? I mean, was that sort of the way it was? I mean, obviously that was yes. the 60s, but is that... Is yes. It, really? It's an, it's an awful business. <laughs> um, it's one of those things where when you start in the business, yeah. and I worked in one of the foreign outposts that is Hong Kong, when you work in a small agency, it's a wonderful place because you get to deal with clients, you get to create cool stuff for them, they love it, you put it out there, they make lots of money, they're happy with you. When you move to a larger agency, for example, it was funny, uh, when, I, when I went to Gray the first time, I was in Hong Kong, I was the, the writer for Lancome. So I was selling 50-year-old Chinese ladies Lancome. You can imagine, like that's putting your head into a very different place. But they liked what I was doing and they wanted to make me one of the writers on L'Oreal. And so I had my first trip to New York with Gray when I was, I think, 23 or 24 years old. And I met with all the L'Oreal people. And I discovered that Gray had an entire floor of copywriters, hundreds of copywriters. It was just a farm. And that's the New York school, you know, throw bulk at it. And they do generally fairly awful work because it is just such a factory. That's why I love small startups. I've always had an affinity for entrepreneurs and startups. But, you know, you go to, you look at Mad Men, and Mad Men is bang on. I worked for some of those guys. Yeah, I wasn't in that generation, but I was the generation after. And that was the glory days of advertising where they were doing garbage work, but with very few exceptions, and making money like lords, because every time you put an ad in the newspaper or on TV, the agency gets a 15% kickback. Wow. And that's the way the, the industry was financed. So it was the glory days where you could do fairly garbage work and make money like kings. It was totally Don Draper, but it was soul-destroying. So there's something that I really liked about the advertising industry and I still do as far as it's a lot different now with social media but like what was it that you that attracted you to that what did you like about it human psychology human psychology plain and simple it was one of those things where you can get yourself into the head of your consumer and figure out what they're thinking what they want what they love what they hate and then position your product to meet their needs Now, on the one hand, that's great. On the other hand, you know, when I started my agency change, it starts to catch up to you. You get rewarded with lots of money and you get rewarded with gold things. Like I won all the awards there are to win. I've won a couple of gold lines at Cannes. I've won the one show. I've won communication arts. I've won every big award show there is. But after a while, after you've won a bunch of these things and after you've got a bunch of money and you've got the corner office, it starts to eat away at you. And you realize that the better you are at, the, at your job, the quicker you're going to kill your kids. Because what we did was create hyperconsumption. 
we created, uh, for example, one of the things that I, I always go back to, I helped revive Mr. Clean. Mr. Clean was on the ropes and New York gave the Mr. Clean account to us in Toronto to resuscitate. Unbeknownst to us, Proctor was ready to sell the business because it was a dog. Everybody loved Mr. Clean. Nobody bought Mr. Clean. So we did a whole bunch of things. One of them was introduce four new flavors of Mr. Clean, spring, summer, fall, and winter. Mm -hmm. The logic was why buy one bottle of Mr. Clean, which works perfectly well, when you can sell somebody four bottles of Mr. Clean a year and then <laughs> pressure them into thinking that why are you using Mr. Clean springtime if it's already summer? You're way behind. And that's land obsolescence. And that's what fuels hyperconsumption. And when you have kids... Or when I had kids, honestly, that was the first time it dawned on me that, oh my God, it's not all beer and Skittles and gold awards. I'm doing something that's actually pretty nasty. So, yeah. And that's, oh man, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's fascinating. Especially you go back to the cereal ads and all the Pepsi and stuff in the nineties. It's like, I was going to ask you that too. Was there some sort of morale feeling like what am i i don't really want to be pushing this stuff but you know well, where i'll tell you pushed right i'll tell you what did it i'll tell you what did it there was one moment that triggered and i talk about this a lot in my speeches there was sort of like a perfect storm that happened with hurricane katrina with al gore's inconvenient truth yeah and with 9-11 and the one thing that i remember about 9-11 was george bush Instead of saying after the, the towers had fallen, saying, be with your families, go and pray, pull together with your community, try to do public service. I don't know if you remember what he said, but he said, go shopping, go shopping, because what we had become is a nation that took care of every social problem with consumption. And that in 2001 was a trigger moment for me. I remember the towers coming down. And starting to question everything, and especially when he said, go shopping, I went, oh, my God, we've completely sold our soul. Wow. You know? So that, there was actually a real trigger point. The problem is, is if you are an advertising writer or a creative director, there is very, or there was, no, no longer the case, there was very little else that you could do. It's not like uh, you're a bus driver and you can go drive a taxi or a dump truck, or whatever. You know, you're an advertising writer, which means that you're probably a crap novelist. You're not really interested in being a journalist because you're superficial. And uh, you like selling stuff, but you don't want to get your hands dirty with sales. So you're probably not a great shoe salesman at Sears. Even though, I mean, that's what I love. But generally speaking, you know, it's a fairly limited specialized profession. So it, when I said, I hate this, I don't want to do this anymore, there is crickets. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a lot of things coming up and going well. Just twist, tweak a little bit, pivot. There was no pivot. Right. So, okay, you started to make a change. You obviously wanted to do something that was a little bit better for the environment, green. Ethical. Yeah, you wanted to, you started to make that shift. Now, that takes a lot of guts to start doing stuff like that. You know, what, what kind of uh, backlash did you face? You know, oh. It was hilarious. It was yeah. absolutely hilarious because I saw, I realized that I was ahead of the curve yeah. when my former boss at Gray in Vancouver said, good luck with that Christian agency. Oh. I thought it was so funny. And everybody, it was very funny because once I said, you know what, I am, it's a bit like coming out of the closet. It's yeah. once you say I'm gay, everybody around you goes, oh, how is that? How is that? I, I think I'm gay too, but I'm too scared to say so. Mm -hmm. I remember 
the reaction in Toronto when I went out on my own. And all these people came out and said, I am sick and tired of dancing for the shiny loony. And I'm sick and tired of selling stuff I don't believe in. How is that? I would love to do what you do. And then I call them up and I say, well, you know what? We're chewing shoe leather and eating grass out of the backyard. <laughs> and they go, well, that's, that's nice. I'd really like to do what you're doing, but I have this cocaine habit. So, you know, it's, yeah. or I, ha I just bought a new Ferrari. So the backlash that you get, you feel like people admire you from a distance, but they just can't get too close because what you do you start to make them question what they're doing. Of course. And nobody wants to do that because that puts you in a very nasty position. That's why it's so tough for people to ever follow what they want to do because especially in their circle of friends or the box that they're in, because then that forces other people to start thinking that, well, what am I doing? Is mm -hmm. what I'm doing not, not mm -hmm. right? Because you start to see somebody else doing something different yeah. and then people start to get pissed off and start to judge you mm -hmm. because they're almost insecure about what they're doing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny. I've, I've had this at various points in my life. I remember when I, when I went off to work in Hong Kong, it wasn't because I made a grand plan to go work in Hong Kong. I am very good at falling ass backwards into new things and not thinking them through properly, mm -hmm. which is a blessing and a curse. But Hong Kong, after a lot of hard work and a lot of sleeping in rat-infested apartments, I started to turn it around and started to have a bit of success in the agency. And I won a few awards. And then I'd come back to Calgary, where I grew up every Christmas time. They sent us home for a break. And I would meet up with my old friends. And they'd say, my God, you're so lucky. You're so lucky you did that. And you just want to scream and shake them and go, luck has nothing to do with it. I'm eating Weetabix and peanut butter three times a day and staying at the agency late so we get a dinner paid for because I got no money. You know, and what you're looking at, the clothes that I'm wearing is all I got. So I was, I was going through some tough times. And then you come back and people would love to put that picture on you that you just, you lucked out. I guess it's the yeah. same with people in a band, the 10 year, the 10 year yeah. overnight success or actors yeah. who've been grinding it and suddenly they get one hit and everybody goes, oh, you're so lucky. No, you're yeah, not. They only see the tip of the iceberg, right? You don't they, see only see, they only see the good stuff and they don't want to put themselves there because they go, I'm not like you. Because I'm not lucky. And then you say, ah, bullshit. You know what? You could do this too if you were happy with eating Weetabix and peanut butter for a year. And they go, oh, oh, so it's work. And yeah. that's where the conversation ends. Yeah. It's not all sunshines and rainbows, right? I mean, that's the 100% not. No. And that's, that's why I hate, I hate this wave of what I'm seeing now, people who are putting out all these books that are going to make you a millionaire overnight, never been any different. It's always been that way. Yeah. But social media and Facebook and cheap video is enabling all these asshats to go out there and say, look at this, this is my Ferrari. These are all these $100 bills laying on my bed here. You could do this. It's, it's a simple three-step secret on advertising on Facebook. You're going, you yeah. are such a clown. But people and their money are easily parted and we continue to buy courses where we think we're going to be lucky like that guy. Yeah, so this is, where, this is where I was excited to go with this because you have been in advertising the old school way, you know, mm -hmm. where things were done differently. You've come along and you've started to change and now you're working for yourself. Now, in hindsight, how different was getting in the heads of your consumer before and how is it now? Like, what is the difference that you see? Because you obviously can see these things that in these ads that you're like, oh, that little shit or, you know, whatever. You can start to, 
you know, things go off because you're trained, you have a trained eye for that. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what are some of the things that have changed and maybe what do you like? What don't you like about how things have evolved? That's, that's interesting. That's a great question. What I came to the realization on was that the technology has changed everything and the technology has changed nothing. Where I make my money now is the same place I make my money when I was 22 years old. That is human psychology. People don't change. Malcolm McLaren, the guy who started the Sex Pistols, famously said that everything in the world comes down to sex. And it's funny, but it's true. Everything that I put out there for any company is trying to help people believe that it will make them more attractive, taller, wealthier, more status oriented. That's all I do. That's all I have ever done. That's all anybody in marketing or advertising has ever done. And that will never change as long as people are feeling insecure about themselves. What has changed is execution and technology. Technology, right now, I can go on Facebook or on LinkedIn and reach as many people by myself in 15 minutes with a persuasive message for free as I was previously only able to do by hiring an ad agency and putting that same message out for fifty dollars to $100,000. Wow. Ad agencies had a monopoly. We had the market sewn shut. And it's the same thing with innovation. I love innovation. I think the pace of innovation accelerating is wonderful because what we see, it's almost like biodiversity where new products are thrown against the wall and if they stick they succeed. And if they don't, they fall off and you can try again. You have to understand that in the 1980s, this didn't exist. Nobody could create a new product. That's why we all went to work for Procter and Gamble because they were the ones with all the uh, scientists yeah. and Unilever and Henkel and all these big companies. They're the only ones who could afford that onerous, prohibitively expensive process of creating new stuff. Now, I can go out and I can test somebody's desire to buy a new widget before I've invented the widget. Or mm. I can do a CAD drawing of that widget. Or if I'm really ambitious, I can, I can print that widget and show it to people and say, would you like one? They say yes. And then I can turn around and I can mass produce it because there is the capacity to produce anything in the world today. Everything already exists. You just take existing technology stick two things together, chocolate and peanut butter, boom. Then you can go to logistics, distribution, operations. You can get the stuff out to the market. So it's really funny. After all these years, the thing that I think has changed the most, one, it used to be a lot harder to put something new into the market because the costs were onerous, and now it's extremely cheap. However, it used to be extremely easy to advertise something new because there wasn't as much noise, even though we thought it was a terrible lot of noise. We had no idea. Yeah. And today, there is so much noise that if you look around at social media, there are a thousand solutions for every problem because it's so cheap to produce them. Each one is slightly different, but how do you choose? And that's why companies like Amazon are brilliant where they say, hey, if you like this, you'll probably like that. And that's how they recommend you to buy things and Yelp reviews and reviews under new products because otherwise there's no way to sift through the jungle, you know? And I think that's the biggest change. Yeah. That's uh man. So interesting. And yeah, it comes down to psychology as well. Like the main core, because mm -hmm. you got to well, find a pain point, right? There's a 
Like, uh, let's, say, let's say now, let's say, okay, you were put, you were the creative writer, you were writing an ad, like say on Facebook, or I'm just saying like in online ads, mm-hmm. would you go about the same way as you would yes. have back in the day? Yes. The, the benefit, the, the beauty of working today, the thing I absolutely love about technology, I used to have a hunch about something. And I bet you a 50-year-old Chinese housewife would like it if I sell skincare like this to her. That's a hunch from a 25-year-old guy. What do I know? Nothing. We would then take it to a focus group, which is absolutely the worst thing that you could ever do to test a campaign or an idea out because it's an entirely artificial setting trying to test out an emotional reaction. You don't get emotional reactions when they're sitting in an overheated room with warm diet Pepsi. It's just awful. And we would pay a focus group conductor, say, fifty dollars to $60,000 to run a focus group. And then we would find results that were awful. And we would go and try something. And more often than not, we would have mediocre success. Not terrible, not great. What I love about today is that I can have a hunch, starting the same way I used to. I can have a hunch about what the pain point is that people have. But instead of hiring a focus group conductor to to run stupid focus groups or polls, what I can do is I can real-time test it by putting that product out into the market. I don't even have to invent the product yet. I just draw it. I create a CAD. I create a, you know, I print it, 3D print it. And I can put it out in the market. And if I get a whole bunch of people clicking and saying, yeah, I'd like that. Here's my credit card number. Tell me when they're ready. Then I can produce the product. It's it's awesome. I can real-time test people's affinity for a message and people's affinity for innovation without ever risking anything. That's wonderful. I love that. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. And to be able to understand and see that, how different it is and still be able to use today's technology in your favor is Mm -hmm. must be amazing because it's so much easier. One of my heroes is David Bowie. And I remember I saw Bowie when he did the the Let's Dance tour. I saw him at a huge stadium. I don't know, 100,000 people. And then I saw him a few years later when he was doing his hardcore techno stuff down at the Plaza of Nations in Vancouver. And there must have been tops 1,000 people, if that, probably closer to 500. And when I saw Bowie at Let's Dance, it was great. It was very slick. But when I saw Bowie in front of 500 people or 1,000 people, he seemed to be alive. And what I love about Bowie and what I've tried to model myself on Bowie for is always throwing yourself at something new. On the one hand, it forces you to be uncomfortable. And I'm sure Bowie spent most of his life uncomfortable. But then you start to get an an affinity, a comfort with discomfort. And that pushes you forward. I always say it makes you old and it keeps you young at the same time you have to keep learning. And even if you fail spectacularly, I mean, the only thing worse than failing is never trying is sitting in your comfy chair and just hitting the repeat button until you die. Yeah, you got to put yourself in those uncomfortable positions, right? So that you can prepare yourself for the real things that happen in life. And I I love that. This kind of goes into my next question. So when you did make the transition and you wanted to take some risks, you know, you had a young family, right? Oh yeah. Or maybe let's let's oh, my God. to the people that are listening that are really worried about sort of following their passion or following they want to stay with the crowd or what they're doing because they have a family. You know, maybe talk about the importance of maybe like still wanting still pursuing what you want to do even mm-hmm. though it's risky and what you went through. Oh, it was it was a disaster. 
But there's some very valuable lessons and I would never have done it different. Yeah. First thing I did, I started my agency change, the sustainability focused one, while I was still working in the big ad in, in industry. Yeah. And the thinking was that for six months, I would do a transition. And what that is, that's the effect of pulling off a Band-Aid really, really slowly. It is excruciating. So I had a deal with my agency that I would work four hours a day for them and then work four hours a day for my own project. And what ended up happening is that I would work 10 hours a day for my agency while they were thinking I was working four hours. And then I would work between, say, nine o'clock and midnight on my own project. So the agency was unhappy. My new project wasn't working. And I was working 14, 16, 18 hour days. Mm. So that's the first mistake I made. The second one, I remember that I started my agency. We were in Vancouver. I was making a healthy living and we signed the biggest mortgage. Uh, or we bought the, the most expensive house of any of my friends. We bought a house back in the day. This was when it still meant something. We bought the first house of our friends group that was over a million dollars, which sunk me into a whole world of pain as far as mortgage goes. And virtually the same week, I quit the big ad agency. So my pay went from the healthy six figures to zero. So that was the second thing. The third thing was that I was a creative. And so I had been able to make a really, really good living. People would tell me what they want to sell. I would come up with a creative way of doing that. And miraculously, a check would appear. I had never bothered myself to figure out how do you actually hunt down an account? How do you bring that account into the agency? How do you structure how you get paid? How do you structure what an ad is worth or what your time is worth? When my wife asked me, I was, she was horrified how stupid I was. When she asked me, how are you going to bill for this piece of work? I said, I have no idea. I had after, what was it, 10, 15 years in advertising, I didn't have a clue how to do the numbers. And I believe that if you are going to do something like that, you have to know how the numbers work, not because you want to immerse yourself in numbers, but numbers provide comfort. And that if you have a base level of money coming in, that stops you from the anxiety attacks that prevent you from doing a good job of what you're good at. So you can't be creative if you constantly think you're going to lose your house, which is we spent about five years four years wondering if we were going to make the next house payment, if we're going to be able to do anything. I remember it got so bad. People, pay, people say, wow, that's so cool. You started your own business and you went into sustainability. You're so edgy. And that's when I tell them that I actually broke four teeth. I had four root canals because I was grinding my teeth so hard that I broke four teeth. And they're like, oh, oh, guess that's not so lucky. And you go, you know, I would pray. We had a little baby boy. And I would pray that he would stay asleep until four o'clock in the morning because if he woke up at three or two, I'd, I wouldn't go back to bed because that's how the anxiety is killing you. So uh, yeah, wow. there are a ton of mistakes. However, however, your question was, would you do it all again? Yes, I would. And this takes me back to a university professor when I was about to go to Hong Kong. Everybody said, don't go to Hong Kong. Don't go to Hong Kong. It's scary and risky. Why don't you stay here and become a lawyer? And he said, go to Hong Kong. And I said, why? Why? Why are you the only person saying go to Hong Kong? He says, think about it. What's the worst thing that can happen if you go to Hong Kong? I say, I go broke. He said, yeah, you're 22. You're going to go broke. Okay. So that means nothing. And then what happens? And I said, well, I guess then I come back home. And he says, then what happens? And I said, then I become a lawyer. And he says, there you go. So the worst thing that you can happen, the worst thing that can happen 
is that you lose some money and you come back and you do what people said you should have done. That's a pretty low risk if you actually think about it that way. And I talked to my wife about that as well. And I said, you know, if I start my own agency, we could lose everything. And that God bless her. She said, you know what? Screw it. You know, stuff is overrated. And she's still like that. In fact, I, I want to tell you just one quick story. I love going off on tangents, but uh, Me too. I we, love tangents too. We were having this new house built. We're now living in Victoria, beautiful place. Yeah. And first time I've ever had a new house and we were having it built. And while we were having it built, we were living in Victoria waiting. And the builder, my brother-in-law said, go away, because if you stick around now, you're going to keep making changes that'll make the house more expensive and take longer. They're not going to make the house better. Mm. So my wife started hunting and we discovered a place that cost half as much as Canada, where business worked, the government didn't want to kill you, the banks worked and education worked, and that was Bali in Indonesia. And so we moved to Bali for six months. And before we moved to Bali, I met a guy named Jason Smith, who's an entrepreneur and was very well-to-do, had run a couple of big companies. And Jason showed up on a scooter to our meeting. And Jason proceeded to tell me that after they went to Bali, they were living up in the endowment lands up at the university on a, in a mansion. They rented the mansion out and they moved into a two-bedroom apartment, not because they didn't have the dough, but because they hated the concept of like a 5,000-square-foot house. And they proceeded to live in that small apartment. And he, gave, he sold his car, like an Audi sports car. And he got himself a little Honda scooter that he burned around town on because he realized that the less stuff you have, the freer you are. And yeah. that is something for everybody with a new Ferrari standing in the way of making their own way should remember. Yeah, then I've heard that too, the minimalist you know, the less you have, the more, the more, that's the thing. A lot of times what holds people back from doing, from traveling or doing anything is because of stuff, couches and TVs. And it really is just bullshit. I mean, if it means getting rid of that stuff to go and travel or move somewhere, I mean, that's just stuff. You can always get more stuff later. Jason had done the world tour and I thought he was a freak of nature when I met him because he was this sort of Zen master. And I'm like, you're a weirdo, man. You're like an entrepreneur. What's up with that? But when we moved to Bali, we got rid of suitcase after suitcase after suitcase of stuff until eventually we had a surfboard, surf shorts, and a sun hat, and we were riding scooters, and we were happy as pigs in poo. (laughs) And when we came back, I understood Jason. You know, I knew where he was coming from, and that's where I made the vow that every few years, I'm going to take my family on a journey like that, where you basically rediscover what's important, and it ain't stuff. And that's what's holding 99% of us back. We don't want to lose the stuff. And then you forget about it after you get rid of it and you don't even care about it. Yeah. You don't, you don't, you don't even care. You go and you're like, why did I care about a couch, man? Like it's so Mm -hmm. stupid. Or like the worry of having to get rid of stuff. You just literally forget about it. Yeah. And and you're like, how did that even, because I I had that, I sold everything and moved from Vancouver to Australia in 2012. And that was a bit of my concern. Like, oh, do I want to, I want to sell all this. We just bought it, you know, a year ago. And I said, screw it. And what I did, it was the best thing ever. And I was going around Thailand with the tiniest little backpack, a pair of shorts. I don't know, like no clothes. And that was it. And I was just, this was the, it was the freest, most liberating moment because I didn't have any other worries. I don't have to you know, pay Mm -hmm. rent or any of that stuff. So I just think people really need to understand that there's always, you can always buy more stuff. Mm -hmm. It's never a reason to not leave or move somewhere, you know? 
Well, you know, that's the problem with people like me is that we make a living convincing people that they need a new watch. And if they don't have a watch, then they're kind of less than. But it's funny because at that point when we moved to Bali, we had two kids. So we had a little daughter who was five years old and my boy was 10 at that time. And we were all freaked out about homeschool and all that shit. And it, it turned out to be such garbage because we homeschooled them and we managed just fine. And when we came back, all they wanted to do was go back. So this whole idea that you can't do it because the, your boy, right now my boy has a girlfriend and, you know, changing schools. It's all bullshit. Yeah. You can do it. And once they get on the airplane, it is one of those things. It's like taking the heroin away from an addict. Yeah. They cannot get off the heroin until they break off the heroin. And then they go, oh, my God, why did I take heroin? Yeah. You know, same thing. You get your kid on the plane. They're going, oh, my girlfriend. Oh, my God, this worries. They're just like mini versions of us. Yeah. And then they get to Bali or they get wherever you're going and they settle down in a, in a house there and they suddenly go, what girlfriend? You know, it's just they don't need stuff either. They don't need yeah. the school. They don't need the they don't need the sound system or the, the computing gear. They don't yeah. care. But you just you do actually have to physically jump across that divide. And trust that on the other side, you will take care of it. And that's, I think, the biggest thing I've learned is no matter how disastrous the results were when I made jumps, and I've been making jumps all my life, we've always caught ourselves. And we've always done just fine. And more, I spend more months than not wondering where the money is going to come from. And every month, miraculously, the money comes. Yeah. And so if you have faith in yourself, it's a wonderful feeling, you know, that you can do this. It's okay. And uh, we, we end up building these cushions around ourselves, you know, from the insurance that we buy to the stuff that we buy mm. to insulate ourselves from the bumps and the lumps. Uh, I think, I don't know who, it's, who, who's, who said it. Most of us live our lives like a fancy yacht in a harbor. We just live on that yacht and we polish it all up. The problem is yachts aren't supposed to be in the harbor. They're supposed to be getting the shit kicked out of them in the ocean yeah. and have their mass broken off and capsized and at the end of it all just limp back into the harbor and sink and that's all you can hope for so you just got to try and trust yourself that if you take your yacht out of the harbor and get yourself kicked around a bit you're going to be having way better stories for it yeah smooth seas never made a skilled sailor right <laughs> exactly there you go. or what i always say is the adventure starts when you lose the map yeah. Well, that's so true. But a lot of the times it's in our heads too. That's where all the worry is. And then when it actually happens, you realize, shit, well, I got to deal with this. And you don't even worry about it. You know, it's oh, like, yeah. it's, you know, you just you, deal with it. Everybody has the capacity to be nimble. Yeah. Most of us never give ourselves the opportunity. So I'm not saying put yourselves, you know, don't move to Afghanistan, but try stuff that is going to take you into the worry zone yeah. It helps you question all the comforts that you built up around yourself as insulation and padding because they just make you fat, stupid, and slow. For sure. So tell us more about, okay, what you're up to now, what you're doing, and, and maybe where you see things going with the space of on, on marketing and ads and, and all that. Mm -hmm. Maybe just paint a picture of what your day-to-day -day looks like and you know, what you focus on. Well, what I focus on right now is uh, simplification. Yeah. And I have a skill or a talent or whatever you want to call it for looking at complex things and making them simple. 
and compelling and attractive. So it used to be that I expressed that in advertising and, and creating ads that would take, you know, a complex proposition and make it really attractive to people. But what I do now, a lot of clients call me up and they say, we have a complicated process. We have a complicated product. How could we make it less complicated and more attractive? And I work on the entire universe of that product, how you treat the customer, the journey that they go on, because I believe the journey that a customer goes on is your best advertisement. If you have like an Amazon style journey where I go to Amazon, I see something I like, I look at the reviews, I look at the ratings, I see other stuff like it, then I order it with Prime, it arrives the next day, they ask me how I like it. I'm like, I love you guys. It's yeah. or, or Costco. The journey, I go to Costco, I buy a tire five years later. This just happened. I get a hole in the tire because of a screw that I put into it by mistake. Not their fault. They replaced the tire. They're super happy about it. I'm like, that journey is so, so important. The least of my job is putting out messages to the public saying, try this stuff. I'm convinced more and more, and I do more and more of this, that having people who like a product talk to people who don't know about a product is the way of the future. Testimonials, videos, things like that, the customer experience, reviews, stuff like that. I'm finding the whole world of advertising more and more disingenuous because really, I mean, if I could hear from you about how you like a deodorant, I would believe it from you. If I hear from a multi-billion dollar corporation that I should like that deodorant, I go, that's not legit. That's pretty sketchy. They just want to sell me deodorant. Yeah. So I make most of my money now helping companies how to make things simple and clean so that customers can flow through their process mm. and come out the other end going, these are good guys. So that's where I make most of my money. I also make, uh, I also make some money helping executives present themselves better. So I grew up writing speeches and giving a lot of speeches just because. And I found that a lot of people don't like to write speeches or give speeches. And so I started a business called Your Ultimate Speech. And I tried to make a go of that. But I mean, that was another one of my, you know, where I fall ass backwards into something, not thinking it through. What I discovered was that writing speeches for executives, most of them don't want to pay a lot of money for it. And the ones who do want to pay a lot of money have a lot of gatekeepers. So you have to get around the gatekeepers. So it's a long, slow burn. And I'm in Victoria. I'm in the wrong town. If I wanted that, I should be in San Francisco or New York. Yeah. But what I discovered is that CEOs like a bit of help writing their own speeches. So I'm finding more and more CEOs are coming to me going, as Warren Buffett said, the best investment he ever did, made was in Dale Carnegie. And that is learning how to present what you're thinking in a motivating way. And so I'm finding that helping executives express what they're thinking about the company in a simple, motivating, inspiring way. Same thing that I do with ads, but I'm doing it one-on-one -on -one and helping them stand in front of a room as opposed to putting you know, an ad on Facebook. So that's how I'm making money. What I'm, what I'm trying to do more of, a guy I partner with, a, a great sales technologist named Joe Girard, he told me, and this is a great thought for people to, to take away, I don't like to wear pants, is what he said. And what he meant was, he likes to sit at home and sit in his shorts. He does not like to leave. He does not like to go out. He wants things to run automatically. And so he has devoted a lot of his career lately to creating automation that will drive people through a sales and conversion cycle 
so that we create a product, we create a sales conversion cycle, people run through it, we get money. It's almost like productizing the simplicity as opposed to servicing people continually and always reinventing. So I'm on a bit of a bent now to try and take on more and more clients where I can control the entire process. What's the brand? What's the simple argument? What's the customer journey? How do we sell? How do we fulfill that is give them their product, rinse and repeat. And then once we get it working, we leave it to work on its own and just tweak, tweak, tweak. We're doing that with a few clients now. And what that will enable me to do is go to Bali again, like Joe, not work in my pants. You know, I want to work in my shorts on the beach in Bali. Yeah, no, that's amazing. I just got a couple more things here for you here. I just wanted to ask you on top of that. So you see things are becoming automated. Do you see retail dying completely or do you see it still having a place? Like where do you see things going in the next? That's an awesome question. That's a great question. Retail is, is sewering right now. And at the same time, it's not. There is something about the social aspect of retail, I think especially for women, where going shopping is an experience that you share with your friends. There's something in retail. I love Home Depot, for example. Yeah, same. And it's, uh, it's one of those things where I walk in there and they have less selection, less informed staff yeah. than I would find online. But I love going to Home Depot because it's just, it's like a massive yeah. play box. Yeah. And so there's something about retail and yeah. good retail, like Costco, where you go, there's an experience here that I really like. Costco, I love going there just because I just can't believe the amount of stuff there is yeah. in the world. And I know there's more stuff on Amazon, but I love walking down the aisles of Costco and going, look at that, look at that. There's stuff they put together. Oh, wow, I could spice my steak with this and I could lock up my possessions with that and I can hang on that hammock. And you know, you're like, yeah. all this stuff. Yeah, it's and so cool. I love it. And then, you know, so there's the social aspect of retail and there is the sort of like this, wow, walking through the temple of consumption. You're like, this is kind of fun. Yeah. I like it, you know, as much as I'm revolted by it from my sustainability perspective, but I love it. And I think the smart retailers are going to be the ones that have an online presence for fulfillment and a bricks and mortar presence for the experience, because there's just something about running your fingers over a dress or holding a drill and just going, I like that, you know, yeah. that you can't get when you're shopping online. And the dumb ones are going to be like department stores where they basically have the space and other brands are in there because people are just going to go, well, I'm going to take a look at the brand and leave and buy it somewhere else without the department store having, having any win in that. You know, yeah. I look at the Apple store and I go, it's fantastic because I can go in there. And if I buy at the Apple store, unlikely they don't mind because they know I'm going to go home and buy from Apple and the Apple store gets some money. Yeah. You know, what's crazy is that, how easy it could be to just do virtually though, these exact experiences, right? Like I was in uh, Edmonton for a couple of days and I've never done any of this virtual reality stuff. We mm -hmm. went into the West Edmonton mall. We went to this right. virtual ride. We did this star Wars thing. Never done it. Never wore the, the stuff, the helmets, all that. Mm -hmm. We went in and then it was exactly like you were there. Mm -hmm. I know it may sound silly to people that have done this stuff, but I was thinking in my head, and I think about retail, I think about how easy it would be to really create that shopping experience in a virtual world. Even though I love the fact that I like buying my electronics at 
a music store or a Tom Lee's or I like, I used to love going to actual buy a physical CD. You know, I like that experience. I used to like renting a movie, but yeah, I like the idea of, of actually looking at the thing before and actually having the human relationship asking and looking at it before I buy it. But I also like ordering offline too. So I, I, I like what you said about having, you know, that presence in retail, but then if you want, you can do the Amazon thing when you're too busy. And because a lot of the times these stores don't have the selection, it's shitty yeah. selection. They go, Oh, we're out of this. I go to Best Buy and they go, Oh, well, we don't have that. I'm like, well, why don't you have it? I'm trying to support you here. I'm uh-huh. trying to buy from you guys, but you're giving, you're making it hard on me. Oh, yeah. buy it online. I'm like, no, I'm here for you. This yeah. is I'm trying to support you here. Right. Yeah. And I just think in my head, I'm like, wow, like how easy would that be to kind of recreate in the virtual world? You know? I don't know. You know, I, I don't know if your audience can see me. Is this, is this projected on video or is this yeah, just yeah, audio? It's video. It's video? Okay. So the people can see that I'm sitting in a nice office here. Now this is, my office is 30 feet away from my house over there. And it's, a, it's an entire building. It's a coach house and it's beautifully done up. I mean, it's a beautiful office. However, I'm in here alone. I just took a desk at a co-working space because I believe that we need to play with other grown-ups. And in order to, to nurture ideas, you need to suck stuff in and you need to exchange ideas. We're just wired that way. That is, that takes us back to when we were still living in trees. We're social animals. And so I believe that the temples of our social interaction today are where we go shop for lack of anything else. Uh, We don't go to church as much. We uh, don't walk up and down the sidewalk as much and sit out front of our house as much. What we do, we go down to the corner store. And so I think that if we decide to put on our virtual reality goggles and we can experience what it feels like to put on a dress or try out a drill or something like that, that's good. But it's going to turn us into social like rejects. And I think that that's absolutely core to what we are as humans. Mm. And you know, what I love about where this conversation is going is you say, where do you think it's going? And this is where I get excited because more often than not, I don't have a clue. And what excites me is when I answer people with, I don't have a clue, which means there's an answer there that nobody's thought of. And that's what keeps me going forward. You know, people saying, well, what do you think is going to happen? I'm like, I don't know. But let's try something, you know, like I'm dabbling. uh, It's funny. I had this conversation yesterday with dispensary guys and dabbling in a a new way of putting a dispensary together for for cannabis. And I get excited. I know it's a black hole. If I got involved with it, it would be just like a disaster. But I love the idea that there's always new stuff to try out and get together with people and think new thoughts and then put them out there and try them out. So, you know, your question on retail, I love it because nobody knows where it's going. Yeah. And, you know, books are starting to make a comeback again and you see bookstores coming up and they were going away for a while. It's crazy. It's like, I think people will crave, will crave that experience again. Like I really believe video stores will come back. Mm -hmm. I really believe that people will, they will want that. They will demand that. But who knows? Maybe it won't. I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking people are going to get tired of all this virtual stuff. And there's going to be like a boom for this old school, go to the place to buy what you yeah. need. No you know, I, th- I think it's not binary. I don't think it's either or. I think it's and. 
there was a great store in Toronto a few years ago when we were living in Toronto called Caban. And I think it was uh, a Loblaws brand. I don't know. But essentially what Caban did, you walk in the store and they surround you with everything that you need if you were a 30-something hipster. Yeah. That's what they did. And it was amazing because that's sort of where we were at the time. And so we'd walk into Caban and you just want to you just want to roll around in the store because it's just like it's got everything from pillows to perfume to music to everything. Yeah. And I see that Indigo now is transitioning from being a bookstore to being a lifestyle experience store. They're yeah. copying Caban. God bless them. I think they should because it's a great model. Yeah. Um, and where I think this could all go, I walk into a store. Let's say I'm a Southern trucker and I walk into the store. I can sign up for my NRA membership. I can get the best motor oil. I can find some country and Western music. I can get a new tattoo on, on the side of my head. I can get everything done that I want that fits with my lifestyle and it surrounds me and it could be virtual. You know, I could watch, I could watch like uh, Dwight Yoakam on virtual goggles and then at the same time get a real tattoo done. I yeah. think that sort of creativity and that surrounding people in what they want, that's kind of goes back to the 1980s when I started. It's all psychology. What do you want? But it's expressing it using new technology and new execution. That's a fun world to be in. Awesome. All right. I got uh, just one more question for you. So what was one thing that you, one tip that you could offer either somebody listening or a young version of yourself to overcome adversity in their job, in their life, or whatever it is that they could use in their own lives to overcome? Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> I, left, I left you with the easy one at the yeah, end. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I, I stitched that last one up so nice. I thought you'd leave me alone. <laughs> but I think there's two things, uh, just myself. Yeah. I think get a relationship with math, which I never had. You know, I, I talked yeah. about this at length, that, that if you have a foundation where you have a way of making money or at least feeling comfortable with numbers, that that will provide you a foundation upon which you can then be more creative. But yeah. if you're starving, it's really hard to, ha to have fun. And I learned that hard knocks. I'm still learning it today. But for a younger version of myself, despite being all cocky and saying, hey, I don't need math, I'm a writer and a creative director, I should have gone and learned a bit of core accounting, just so I know what a credit and a debit is, you know, and, and all the fundamental bare bones, basic stuff. So that's right. my first piece of advice, get a relationship with numbers and money, not that you become a money person, but that you create a foundation from which you can then leap. The second thing is what my um, university professor told me is, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? And 99% of the time, the worst thing that can happen if you get over all your neuroses and your anxieties about trying something new isn't that bad. And I think that people should not equate that with, all right, I'm going to chuck everything, sell everything, become a Buddhist monk or move to Iraq. But I would say that inoculate yourself a little bit by trying adventures, whether it's a side hustle or whether it is jumping out of your boring corporate job and trying something new, especially if you have the assurance of perhaps a, a, like a, a small source of income through something else, whether it's an inheritance or some you know, mutual funds you've got, try that stuff. Because even if it's a disaster, the story will be worth it. It's a fun story because disasters make the best stories. And two, you'll start to feel exhilarated a little bit. It, it gives you juice. 
And I think that that's why I keep coming back to this is that this feeling of the unknown and the excitement of the unknown, it's a wonderful way to go through life. And if you're only going to go through once, then why not stay excited? You know? So those are the two things I'd recommend. Awesome. I love it. Where can we all find you? The best place to find me is on LinkedIn. So it's Mark Stoiber, M-A-R-C-S-T-O-I-B-E-R. B is in Bravo on LinkedIn. Or you can go to Mark Stoiber Brand Strategy. Just type in Mark Stoiber. There's not, I've got a weird name. There aren't that many of us around. But yeah, Mark Stoiber on LinkedIn. You can find all the information that you need on me. Awesome. Well, you know, I could talk to you for hours. I felt like that was a very quick conversation, but it's already been an hour. So I'll, I know. I'll respect your time. I really appreciate you coming on. That was awesome. I love, I love you doing this, man. I know that, uh, you know, I've participated in things like fuck up nights before that the tech guys put on. I think there's a real illness around this idea of you need to be successful. And that's especially prevalent in tech where everybody feels like a loser because they're not going from zero to IPO in six months. And I think we need a lot more people like you telling us that, yeah, it's hard, but, uh, you know, getting punched in the face every once in a while isn't such a bad thing because it helps you grow and it keeps life interesting. And going from zero to IPO in six months, it doesn't happen except in those crap ads where they're trying to sell you stuff. No, yeah, I really appreciate it. And I just try and doing this just to try and make everybody comfortable with the journey, right? Whatever journey they're in, you know, whether you don't have to go through deaths or, you know, whatever crazy shit happens, but that there are, there are adversities that come up in your life and you just want to have the tools to deal with them because they're going to come in all different shapes and sizes and forms and just hearing stories like this and, you know, other ones, there's just such a good variety that I just love to share with people. So yeah, I like I said, your story was awesome. You dropped a lot of value, so I really, really appreciate it, Mark. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Didn't See It Coming, the show about brands that learn from the past, look to the future, and profit today. I'm your host, Mark Stoiber. If you'd like to talk about brands, drop me a line. I'd love to hear your ideas. 